Welcome, everyone, to this special interview edition of Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is part two of my conversation with Hall of Fame tennis writer Steve Flink, and we're getting into Pete Sampras. Why? Because there's a new book out September 1st. Steve is the author, Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. It does a tremendous job of chronicling the, the career of Pete Sampras. And in part two here, we get into more of Pete Sampras's career, who he was as a player, who he is as a person, and I enjoyed this very much. Hope you do as well. If you haven't seen part one, check that out. This is part two. Without further ado, Steve Flink. How did how do you view uh, the elusive French Open title when it comes to Pete's legacy? He's in great company with some of the other great fast court players of his era. It just seemed like for a lot of them, it was really difficult to win Roland Garros. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, we saw this with Connors. We saw it with McEnroe. We've seen it with so many of the greats. And, uh, you know, Stefan Edberg was never able to pull it off. He came close against Chang in 89 and couldn't quite do it. Uh, yeah, he's in good company. I think it was one of those things. I've, I, he doesn't necessarily feel this way, but I, I do. That if he had targeted the French in 94 when he was really sweeping through the first half of the season, he had eight titles by the time he won Wimbledon that year in the first half of the year. He was, and he won the Italian granted he played Becker in the finals, but still he beat some good clay quarters and won the Italian. So he was on a, a roll there. And I thought if he had really targeted the French, if one of those years he said, okay, this year I'm going after the French, even if it costs me Wimbledon, that he might've grabbed one in the mid nineties. Then it got to the point where too much of it was in his head. And it got harder and harder in the latter years of his career, and he wasn't as well equipped to deal with it. But I felt like, retrospectively, that he could have won the French in 94. And then with a little luck in 96, he had lost his coach. Jim Gullickson had passed away in early May, and he didn't really get the preparation he needed for the French that year, but still made the semis on a string of five-set wins, beating Todd Martin, Bruguera, and Courier. And then he kind of ran out of gas against Kafelnikov, who only beat him twice in his career. If he beats Kafelnikov, he plays Steak in the final, and that would have been a very atypical clay court match. There would, the rallies would not have been long, and it would have been, I think he would have been right in there with a great chance. So I think it's, it, it's one of those things where Wimbledon was always the primary goal, and he didn't dismiss the French. He tried, he prepared, he played all the clay events, but it wasn't, it wasn't sort of that overriding goal that was moving through his mind or, or preoccupying him. If it had been, I still feel like he could have come away with one French Open. So in other words, he never really sold out on it and made it his chief, chief uh, objective like Roger Federer seemed to and Novak Djokovic seemed to. Right, exactly, exactly. They, they, Novak, really, Novak had come so close so many times, lost a couple of finals to Rafa in 12 and 14, and by the time he 16 came along, he wanted it so badly and he got it. And you're right, and Roger in 09 had that one window when Soderling beat Rafa. And so finally he didn't have to go through Rafa and he took it. And I don't know whether either one of them well in advance, Novak maybe well in advance was trying to peak for the French. And he was also on one in, in, in a dominant phase, having won three majors the year before and having won the Australian at the start of 2016. So different, while Roger, I think suddenly his eyes lit up when Rafa was gone. Rafa loses to Soderling the first weekend. It's like, okay, this is my chance. And he took it. Wimbledon, on the other hand, was, was a perfect tournament for Pete. And on, on the surface level, face value, of course. It's such a, it was such a fast court. 
Uh, and Sampras has the big serve and the impeccable volleys and the great attacking forehand and the chip backhand when he needs it. But it almost seemed like it suited him off the court as well and that he was just at home and at peace and in a perfect state of mind whenever he was in North London, if you want to even call it that. Yeah, well, you probably saw in the book, I, I got him to talk a little bit about that. He he talked, I had him really try to, comp- I tried to get him to compare as uh, as uh, accurately as he could the, the U.S. Open to Wimbledon in terms of where, where was he more comfortable. I always said that Wimbledon was his home abroad because there was something about his temperament. And I think the British kind of adopted him in a way. They didn't have a great champion. Henman came along in those years and threatened. But they didn't have anybody till Murray. So they went all the way from Fred Perry in 1936 to Andy Murray in 2013. That's a long time. That's 77 years. So they, but they loved Pete. And he loved the surroundings and the ease of the place and renting a house, a quieter life. It just suited him to the hill. So it was the combination of the surface and the environment that I think made him such a great Wimbledon player and helped him to win seven titles. Yeah, the off-the-court stuff was interesting. It seemed like Sampras really wanted, you know, intense focus. Uh, He talked, uh, Todd Martin talked about how, I wish I had the discipline to just not go out like Sampras had, and, and Martin didn't quite have that. And Pete even lived in Florida, which was, it was a big sacrifice, right? He, he liked it better in California, but he lived in Florida. His family was in California, so he would have much rather been around them. But he felt for his tennis and his training, Florida made more sense for a variety of well, Yes, that was no doubt that was a sacrifice. But the way he went about his business with his, uh, his, his unending, undying professionalism, he did, it wasn't a tough decision for him to say, I'm going to Tampa. Later, he was in Orlando for a while, but most of those years was in Tampa. And he, he just felt that he had to do that for, for professional reasons, and it, it definitely paid off. The one regret that he, uh, that he expressed kind of throughout is that he kept too much inside, right, which was kind of interesting. Um, and, and one example is he had stomach ulcers, and he basically didn't tell anyone for, for two years that he was dealing with this stomach pain that was pretty substantial. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I, you know, maybe there were people in his family, but yeah, he did keep it pretty secret. I don't know how much Paul Anico knew about it at the time. And yeah, he does regret that he didn't maybe open up a little bit more about it, but he just, things were still go- moving along so successfully for him. And, and so when he'd have these episodes, like he did at the end of 94, when he's drinking all this water and throwing it up before he played Magnus Larsen in the, in uh, the Grand Slam Cup, he just, he just kept putting it aside. He, he just felt like he would deal with it. And yeah, that, that's right. The internalizing, I think he regrets that he, didn't, that, that he didn't deal with that a bit differently, but that was just his nature. And he also was not gonna feel sorry for himself. He just was gonna try to find a way to contain it. Then he had an additional problem with his thalassemia, which was you know, a blood condition. And uh, I mean, he would, what that would do is make him, he could get a little uh, uh, unusually tired on the hottest days, more so than the average, more so than Agassi or Curry or, or Chang ever would have. So it was really more debilitating for him. So he had those twin imposters, if I can call them that, of the ulcer and the thalassemia to, to deal with. In, you know, and the thalassemia, that sort of stayed with him throughout for the rest of his career. The ulcer he eventually licked after a couple of years, but you're right. He did, he did say he kind of regretted that he, he kept that so much to himself. 
but he fought, he fought very hard um, through those things. And that's, you know, that's um, something that, again, he, he didn't show anyone. So you couldn't have known. And that's the beauty of kind of going back and, and reliving, you know, his, his great tennis triumphs, but with the added depth, the added layer. So I love that. Um, a lot of people will watch this and they'll want to watch a Pete Sampras match. And they're, you know, amazing um, descriptions of, of all of these, you know, the most important matches and all 14 majors he won. If you were to recommend a match that encapsulates who Pete Sampras was as a player, what match would that be? Wow, that's tough. Tough I mean, question. I yeah, tough question. I would. I think they wanted to see him playing the game as maybe as well as he ever played it. And they'd go to the 99 Wimbledon and watch him beating Agassi 3, 4, and 5 because that was he, – he, he later thought that perhaps he played even better in the 0-2 final against Agassi at the U.S. Open, but that, that got more complicated because he dropped the third set and had to fight hard and win it in four. Still played beautifully. But I would say – that, that match against Agassi showed him in his brightest colors. That, that Maybe that would be the one that I would turn to. And what was your process when you were writing this um, in terms of recounting and, and um, re, uh, re-digging up these matches? Well, I mean, I, I had lived them, Gil, so closely at the time. I was so familiar with them. I, I, I felt like with maybe a depth that the other reporters might not have had, I can't say for sure, but I... I know they were they were very clear in back compartments of my mind. So I, I had an I, I really sort of knew where I was going with it. I didn't really have to do much outlining. I knew what I I knew what I was going to emphasize and what I wasn't going to. And I felt like I wanted to do you kind of alluded to it. I wanted to make sure each major got its due. So that even even the Australian you know, of ninety four and ninety seven, which maybe weren't as highly acclaimed prizes, even though they were slams as, as the, the seven Wimbledons or the five years opens, I wanted to get into the details of, of those triumphs so that somebody had a, a really accurate historical recount of all, of all, of all the biggest matches. And that included, as you, as you read, I'm sure, you know, some of the, uh, uh, the scares that he had Dominic, her body at the 97 Australian open coming out of nowhere and almost beating him on, a, on an impossibly hot day or, the young Mark Philippoussis at the U.S. Open in 95, giving a, a big scare on the, in Arthur Ashe Stadium. I didn't want to ignore those moments, too, to show how he dealt with some really precarious moments where maybe these majors would not have come off. Maybe he wouldn't have done it. So I just was trying to be thorough and make sure each major got its due and all of the, all of the critical matches were covered. I hope I succeeded on that. Certainly seemed, seemed that way. The common theme, of course, was that when Pete was feeling good and he, you know, had his mind and his body in the right place, he, he would win. I mean, there, there just weren't that many occasions where he, come up, where he came up short in that instance. What was interesting to me is that um, the, the spots where he had dips is actually when he um, accomplished what he was really looking to accomplish. So after the six straight years at year end number one, he didn't play the, he didn't play Australia the next year. Right. Cause he just was so right. um, exhausted right. by it. Absolutely. That took so much out of him. The fast, the, the remarkable thing about that 98 campaign was 
He only won four tournaments the whole year. Fortunately for him, Wimbledon was one of them. He wouldn't have even felt his idea, his sense of purpose and importance was so clear that had he not won that Wimbledon, I don't think he ever would have made the chase. Even if the points were available and he might have been able to be number one, he wouldn't have felt he deserved it if he hadn't have won Wimbledon. But he only won four the whole year, and his hair was falling out. It was it was a it was just an excruciatingly difficult campaign for him at times because he he wanted that record so badly. Most years, Gil, he didn't worry that much about number one. He figured if he won the majors, it would take care of itself, and largely it did. Winning the majors and some Masters 1000s to back it up and some year-end championships, the ATP at the end, he, that, it, it, it just would all fall into place. But this year, it's like, okay, he knew that Con he and Connors were tied with five years in a row for the record. He wanted that. It became paramount in his mind, and as a result, he didn't play as well as he did in 97 or 99, for example. But you're right. Then, we, the, by the end of that 98 season, he was spent. He just was empty, and there was no way he could get himself back up in time to go over to Australia at the start of the, of, of the 99 season and play it. So he skipped it. And then, I, and then, as it turned out, he really got going in the middle of that year played some of the best tennis of his career from Queens Club through Wimbledon, L.A., Cincinnati, four titles in a row, then one loss, which was more retirement, and comes to the Open and has to skip the Open because he hurt his back in practice. So actually that year, one of the reasons he did lose number one was partly that the, the emotional letdown after, win, after accomplishing the record, but also, Gil, because he, he, didn't, he just didn't, wasn't able to play enough and he missed two slams, the first and last Grand Slam tournaments of the year, he did not play. And he was really bullish on his chances at that U.S. Open as well. Oh, yeah. I, I, right. Because he'd been on that great streak, he was just so confident winning Queens, Wimbledon, the two hardcore tournaments in the States in the summer. And in that span, he beat Agassi three times, Wimbledon again in the final of L.A., again in the semis of Cincinnati. And Agassi was his chief rival. And he beat Rafter in that span. He beat Krychek, who was always a, a problem for him. So he just felt like he was on top of the world. And he would have been a big favorite to win in New York. There's no doubt about it. And then had that happened, I think that you would have seen him have a good fall and, and, and most, you know, without the injuries and missing most of the fall, then he might have been number one for seven years in a row. But that was a, you're right in your central point that sometimes the big accomplishments then meant that he had to kick back a little bit because he took so much out of himself emotionally. But eventually Roy Emerson and, and that record uh, emerged and was, was clearly well in hand and in reach. Um, and he was able to, to surpass Emerson. And a similar thing happened after that, right? After that, uh, it was the 2000 against yeah, uh, right. Rafter. Yeah. Exactly. So he beats, he, his parents had never been there to see him win a major before and they came over and, Long rain delay, couple of big rain delays. He beats Rafter on the edge of darkness at 8.57 in the evening. He completed it just in time in four sets. So he's got the record. He passes Emerson. At this stage, he's got 13 majors. And you're right. Then, so it turned out he didn't win another tournament until his last one, the U.S. Open, two years later. But what happened, part of that, Gil, was he also got married in about three weeks after the U.S. Open in 2000. He was already engaged, but he decided somewhere along the line there to get married. And that was also, that was another factor. But I do think achieving that record after striving for it for so long, 
it definitely took away some of the competitive drive. There's, there's no, it, it suddenly didn't mean as much as he, as you saw him say in the book, didn't mean as much to him that the goal of having to be number one, it just, it sort of left him. He still felt he could play his best on big occasions, but the, the, the drive was not on the same level that it had been the previous six years. And that's another reason why Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal coexisting together in the same era probably helps all three of them and keeps them going. And uh, you do wonder if, if Sampras had a, a competitor alongside him that was doing similar things a, as he was, would that have propelled him to keep going? There's no guarantees because as you, as you said, uh, his, his personal life and his private life was something he wanted to focus on. But that is something you have to wonder about. Yeah, fair point. And, uh, but I think in his day, Gil, it just, was so, it just was sort of expected of you almost that when you got to 30 or just beyond 30, it was sort of time to say goodbye. And Edberg sensed that and Becker did. And uh, Lendl was essentially in that camp. And, and Mackinac, they got into the, you got into your early 30s and the handwriting was on the wall and you sort of accepted it. And in his case, it was more than just that. He just felt there wasn't anything left which is why that when he won the last U.S. Open in 02, he took his time. He didn't decide it right away. First, he decided to skip the rest of 02. Then he started entering tournaments in the next year, and, but ended up pulling out of one after another till he finally decided to retire because he realized he'd had, there, was, there was nothing left in the tank. Now, these three have never reached that point, and you're right. Maybe the fact that they've had this ongoing uh, enduring great series of matches among them is, is, is a primary reason. But Pete, in his case, it was different because he, he had a winning record against all of his, his primary rivals. And he didn't have a situation like this where Nadal and Federer and Djokovic and the, the battle for supremacy and close head-to-head -head records and all the rest of it. It was, it was a different time. But I don't know whether he would have had more. It, it is ama what amazes me is to think that these three guys, even with each other, that not one of them has felt, especially Federer, that somewhere along the line he didn't say, I've, uh, I, I, I'm going back to my family. I've, I've accomplished a lot in this game. I'll let, I'll let Rafa and Novak duke it out now, but I've had enough. And he, he doesn't seem anywhere close, even with the recent injury. We'll find out. But I think we're going to see Roger play maybe up till 41. Yeah, it, it seems that way right now. I think he does want to play at least the Olympics uh, next year. Uh, but bringing it back to Pete, yeah, his, his game was at a, in a less consistent place. But in that 2002 U.S. Open, he played at such a high level that some of the people you interviewed actually said that that 2002 Pete could pop, perhaps beat prime, you know, mid-90s, 1995 Pete. Yes, there was some disagreement. Pete felt that way himself. He, Which is he, fascinating. He, he had said that to me before, too. He said, oh, the 2002 Pete would have killed the 95 Pete. He didn't put it quite the same way in the book, but he definitely felt he would have beaten any other version of himself. Todd Martin felt that way. Interestingly, McEnroe did not. McEnroe said, no, I think he did. He attacked. He did what he had to do in that Oton. He played, gave him credit for playing beautifully, no doubt. But in his mind, the, the 95 Pete would have, would have been better. It's a tie. I was sort of in between on that because there were stages in 97 and 99 where I thought he was at, at that same level as we saw at the 02 Open. But regardless of where you stood in that argument, it was, 
it, it was a, it just a spectacular way to end a career, given that he actually found himself seated 17th at that last U.S. Open. Imagine that, somebody as great as him. And he's seated 17, and, and he pulls off this, you know, comes out of this match with Greg Ruzetsky and wins it in five sets. That could have propelled him. And then next thing you know, he's beating Tommy Haas and Roddick, and then he, nice semi against Schalke, and then he beats Agassi in the finals. Just a remarkable run. And there were certainly moments. I think what was so appealing about him then is that he really, the attacking had, had gone to a, a new extreme. And there was just no hesitation about getting in at all costs and chipping and charging. And the second serve was, again, the, the velocity on the second serve by then was off the charts. So I, I, I do think he, he was a more imposing player at that 0-2 Open than any other version of himself. That I would say. Two first serves, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned a winning record against all of, his, all of his chief rivals from Agassi to Becker to Courier. But what's kind of amazing about that is the array of different play styles that, that they implemented. You had serve volleyers like Becker. You obviously had baseliners like Agassi and Courier. It seemed, uh, you know, a big server like Ivanisevich. It seemed like whatever was across the net from Pete, he did have an answer. How, you know, is that the crux of, of what is so impressive about his body of work? I think it is. And I think Michael Chang talked a lot about that as well, that this diversity of styles and how he could beat them down. It didn't matter what you threw at him, a servant volley, a baseline, or a big hitter. They, it, and every conceivable style. And if you if you look closely at an Ivanisevic or a Rafter, and then Ed, Edberg toward the end of his career, and Boris, and then you threw out the Changs and Couriers and Agassiz who had more similarity. And he really did face much more diversity than what we're seeing now. And I think that was something Mary Carrillo saluted him for, is that he was winning on the grass when the grass played more like grass, is the way she put it. And she felt like that, therefore, that made his seven Wimbledons in its way more impressive than Rogers' eight because of the type of competition. And, you know, because of the fact that it wasn't always in his, you couldn't feel like, it, he couldn't feel like it was entirely in his hands. And he talked about it too, that it would have been a lot less stress if he just played only one type of player all through his career. It was only serving volleyers. It was only baseliners. But he had to, as he said, he, he was Stefan Edberg one day, Andre Agassi the next, maybe Goran even this was the day after that, or Krychek. So it was, you had so many different challenges of attacking players, baseliners, big hitters, dirt ballers, you name it. Which style do you think bothered him the most? Or, or perhaps which opponent do you think worried him the most? I think the ones that worried him the most, forget Clay, because Clay, obviously, he came up against really great Clay court players. That was tough, and sometimes he, he, he couldn't handle that, the, the best of the Clay quarters. But if you stay off of Clay, the ones that worried him the most were the big servant volleys. Were, even Isovich would have been one, although he solved that riddle very nicely. Krychek was another. Rafter was not easy for him to play, although he had a great record against him. Uh, those guys worried him more. The biggest servers were the ones that worried him the most because it reminded him of himself, and he felt like, okay, you know, I might, if I don't, if I don't convert this one break point against Gorin, that could be the set. I'd better break him now, you know. One, and then you felt like you couldn't possibly lose your own serve. While if he was playing Chang, Agassi, Courier, 
in the back of his mind, I think he always felt he could break back against them in a way that wouldn't necessarily be the case with a Goran Ivanisvich or, or a Patrick Rafter or one of the Serban volleyers. Richard Krychek, he didn't ever quite become the great player we thought he would, but he was one of the guys that gave Pete the most trouble, no doubt about it. Pete wanted that control. He wanted to take the hand, the, the racket out of his opponent's hands, right? And it, it was kind of uncomfortable to play someone. And almost always hand. he did. And almost that, always he did. Right. It, it wasn't very often that that wasn't the case. And then when he did have to, I think the fact that he turned things around so thoroughly against even if even Isovich and won 10 of their last 11 clashes. And that, you know, that also, that included a couple of wins in the finals of Wimbledon. You know, it's a very tough court to beat somebody who served as big as even Isovich did this overwhelming left-handed delivery that you had to face. And he, he managed to beat even Isovich in, Two finals and one semifinal. So he won three out of four on the grass at Wimbledon, which, which was remarkable. But those were the ones, those were the contests that probably made him the most uncomfortable. Another gigantic server. So he goes out in 2002 with the U.S. Open title, decides that uh, he's ready to step away from the game. And, and since then, he's had, you know, a, a really what seems like a lovely personal life. Um, and he's a very devoted husband and a very devoted father. How would you kind of, how would you summarize his uh, post-playing career so far? Well, there was also the period, I don't go into it that much in the book, Gil, but he did have a nice little spree there with the seniors. Mm-hmm. So this was sort of mainly re-emerging in the seniors, mainly starting in 07. He came back for team tennis in 06 and a few exos. So there was a period from 07 for about five years where he played quite a few senior events and they were, they didn't take up too much of his time, but no, I just think he likes this quiet life. I think if he latched onto a great compelling business opportunity that made him more visible, but it's something that he knew would reward him psychically, he would take it. And here and there, you know, there have been things that have come up, but he's not going to do it just for the sake of doing it. I, I admire that in him. It's, I mean, he could have done, he could have done as much commentary as he wanted to do by now but that just has not appealed to him. So yes, he's had the family life. He plays a lot of golf, likes to go to the gym, and he's just led his own quiet California life. And so he, he, he lives by his own code. And I don't think he has to, to explain that to anybody. I think it's terrific. Do you get the sense that maybe post-fatherhood, he'll be a little bit more open to uh, looking at other things? Yeah, when you say post-father, when the kids, yeah, when it's well, kids are... Yeah, that was bad phrasing. No, I know what you mean. I think, I think it's possible. I think it's possible. Who's to know how he feels at that time if his kids are grown up and married and, or at least, you know, very busy and getting out of college and knowing what they're going to do. Yes, it's, it's, it's entirely possible. But again, he would only do it, I think, it was something that he found richly rewarding you know, within himself not just to sort of impress other people. Look, I started this academy. Look what I'm doing here. And uh, it, 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 there has to be a good reason for him to do it. And it might well happen at that stage of his life. You never know. He always knows what he wants, right? He, he's very much someone who uh, doesn't really, you know, he stays within himself. And he did that on the court, but he also does that in life. And he just, you know, he seems very much in control. Uh, for, for the most part, is kind of how I look at it. 
Yeah, I think you, you read that well. It's very perceptive. And I think he knows himself so well and always has. So he also doesn't get carried away with the perceptions of others or what others think he should be doing. He's going to do what he wants to do. And one of the things, the words he used with me many times in the interviews talking about his current life is contentment. He's very content. That's what matters. And why shouldn't he be after what he accomplished in his career with the 14 majors and the six years in a row at number one? And the way he looks at it, that was almost half his career at number one. So he, he, he fulfilled so many professional dreams that right now, you know, he's, uh, he leads the life that he wants. Steve, let's end on this. Um, you, I don't, know, I don't know how long this project took, but it is so full and, and so rich with detail uh, and it's so comprehensive. What did, you, um, what did you come out of it that you didn't have going into it, writing this book? I wasn't sure what I, I, I would say that I, I wasn't that shocked by anything he said to me, though, although I love the perspective that he had of almost two decades passing and being able to look back on it in maybe a slightly different way as a man in his late 40s as opposed to 30. And I, so uh, I thought he was as thoughtful as, as he always had been with me when I interviewed him during his playing days. But I think what probably I found most uh, interesting was, the, was what all of the others said. I didn't know exactly what an Ivanisevich or a Rafter or an Edberg was going to say to me or how Courier was going to look at it now. I don't think I could have gotten Jim Courier to say some of the things he said to me now when it was still a, a rival of Pete's because he was in a different place in his life. But I was just sort of bowled over by the, the amount of reverence all of these other players had for him. And I think the, this crystallizing story, Gil, was, which you probably saw was the Gorny Vanisovich talking about winning Wimbledon in 01. And that's when Pete had lost to Roger Federer and Gorn went on and won that title after having been in the finals twice against Pete and once against Andre. So as a wild card, ranked 125 in the world, Ivanisovich wins Wimbledon. And the, the next month they're in Cincinnati and Pete went up to Gorn in, in the locker room in Cincinnati to congratulate him on winning Wimbledon. And the way that Ivanisovich talked about what that meant to him to have, and how, how honored he was to be in the Sampras era playing in the same era as Pete Sampras and that Sampras would show this other side of himself and come up to him and congratulate him, go out of his way to do that. And what that seemed to mean to Ivanisevich, I, I found that maybe the most poignant moment in the book. And, and one of the things that I most enjoyed hearing from any of the people who spoke to me about Sampras. More incredible anecdotes and great honesty from so many of the people around Pete Sampras. It's all in here. Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. And uh, Steve, I was, uh, the release date is September 1st. You can pre-order on Amazon. I was, uh, I was honored that you wanted to, to talk about this book with me and um, that you sent me a copy. And uh, this was great. And I, I really come out of this with, with so much great insight and new perspectives. Well, Gil, I wanted you, to, I really wanted you to see it because I know how much you love this sport and I know how much you appreciate the likes of Roger Novak at Rafa today. And I knew that, yes, you'd seen Pete a lot on film, but I thought maybe perhaps having a different view of him in print could be enlightening, uh, anybody in your age bracket. And so I'm, I'm delighted to see what you've taken away from those pages and the way you now perceive Sampras 
because I think it, you have a very good read on, on the book. Steve, uh, enjoy the U.S. Open. Hopefully, that's, uh, that's a great event. It will be a strange event, but what isn't these days? And uh, we'll, we'll catch up after that. Okay, Gil. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me on.